All right, thank you. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 10 today, so please turn there. Um, we have been in Acts for, I, I guess, a, almost a year? I don't, has it been that long? No? In August, it'll be a year. Okay, thank you. Wow, you knew that. Good for you. Um, and we've covered a lot of ground. We've covered a lot of ground. Now, Acts is a tricky book. It's a tricky book for people. Um, we won't get all into the, to the details, but it's often mistaught. It's misapplied um, to justify uh, things and activities uh, in the church. Uh, but, uh, but what we've seen thus far, doctrinally, uh, that Acts is a book of transition. It's a book of transition. It's a story of the Acts of the Apostles. The Apostles were those that were especially uh, appointed by God to proclaim the gospel, to take the gospel uh, to places in the world, uh, take the message of Jesus Christ in the areas of the world where it had never yet been received. Okay, and So these were specially gifted men uh, who did specially uh, unique uh, gifts, uh, sign gifts, and uh, in order to proclaim, in order to justify their message. And so this is going on, and, and, and we've been talking about all these stories. We've been talking and, and discussing how the church has been growing. Uh, it's been growing. It's been spreading. There's been persecution in Jerusalem, and the followers of Jesus are having to, to scatter out into other regions, which is actually just like, like throwing, uh, like this is how I plant stuff in my yard like this. Right, and so the, the seeds are taking root in Samaria and other regions, and then the, and the and the gospel is beginning to sprout and to grow in other places, and we're beginning to see that work. The church is growing, and one of the most significant characters that we have seen in Acts so far is the Apostle Peter. Okay, and he, uh, for all practical purposes, is the leader of these apostles, and and he's preaching the gospel. He's spearheading the gospel. He's being used of God um, both in Jerusalem and in surrounding regions now. We just saw in the previous chapter that he went into Samaria and that he, um, uh, that he gave the gift of the Holy Spirit, Spirit to, the, to the Samaritans. And we see him in all of the crucial and most important things that have happened in Acts so far. Peter has played a very important part of all of those stories. He's the leading voice in the early church as it comes out of Jerusalem. Now, at this point in Acts, we're, we're witnessing a transition taking place. Okay, This is a very strategic moment, uh, this chapter, Acts chapter 10, and all of the things that have been happening. Now, we've talked about how Acts is a book of transition. There's lots of things that are turning leaf here in this book. Okay, And one of those things is an Old Testament economy is becoming a New Testament economy. It's a very unique uh, dispensation, and God is doing things differently now that he's poured out his Holy Spirit. He's, he's torn down the division between Jew and Gentile. And so uh, what we also can know is we can see that the religious order that previously existed, the institutions, the laws, the customs that were previously necessary in order to worship God, those now have been done away with. And all people, regardless of whether or not they come from a Jewish background or a Gentile background, now have access to God through Jesus Christ rather than the customs, the traditions, and the laws. Does that make sense? 
And so just briefly, some of us might not be f- familiar with some of these ter- terms when we're talking about Jews and Gentiles. This is what we mean. The Jews were God's appointed people. Okay? And we can go way back, and we, and we have in previous messages and talked about how the Jews were unique to God. They were his chosen and unique people to be a light into the whole world. They were designated among all the nations of the earth uh, to, to um, live in, a, in accordance and in, in, in obedience to his exact command. He delivers his word directly to this people group. Okay? And so they have the words of God. In fact, their responsibility is to be stewards of God's word and to proclaim, proclaim his message to all of the Gentile nations of the earth. And, and these are a people group that follow those customs. They follow those institutions. They, they instituted uh, the, the temple worship. They instituted the, the priestly order. They instituted uh, all of the different laws, uh, the Levitical laws, the Abrahamic laws, uh, of the past, and they believed those, and they lived according to them in order to have access to God. And then you have the Gentile people. There are people who were pagan in their traditions. In other words, these are people that chose rather than to follow God. They, they chose to follow a multiplicity of gods. And, and from region to region and, and nation to nation, those gods might differ, but essentially their idea of following God was picking and choosing uh, which god that they preferred and then a living in a life of darkness, essentially, enslaved to that particular God, uh, working their way to salvation uh, rather than believing in faith. And, uh, and so there's a distinction among them. Now, Gentiles were recognized as Jews to be particularly uh, wicked and uh, separate and in many regards undeserving of God's favor. And all of that's beginning to change. The death, burial, and resurrection mark the end of such divisions. Does this make sense so far? I know that this is a review for a lot of you. Uh, and, uh, but I think it's very important for us to revisit and to acknowledge that, that the death, burial, and resurrection uh, marked the end of this division. And the Jewish people no longer had the market cornered on the worship of God. Uh, the veil of the temple was torn. Uh, temple worship was no longer necessary. Jesus Christ uh, indwells believers through his Holy Spirit, and everything begins to change. Now, the delivering of the gospel message is very, very unique. Okay, And as ascribed by Jesus in the gospels in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus himself gives Peter the keys to the kingdom. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but Jesus tells Peter that, that he's giving him these keys, and it's his responsibility to unlock the gospel for the Gentiles. Okay, now we first see this take place in Acts chapter 2, right? Do you remember this story? It's a pretty crazy story, right? Peter delivers this message, okay? Him and the other disciples, they're out in Jerusalem during the feast week, they're preaching the gospel, and they're doing it in unknown tongues. In other words, when they spoke, the languages of other people were coming out of their mouths supernaturally. So that this very uh, diverse group of people that were in, in Jerusalem for the feast week were hearing the gospel in their own tongues. The Holy Spirit was poured out, and then Peter unleashes the, the message of the gospel, and we see thousands of people come to know Christ in Jerusalem. And the church begins to get established, and Jews are beginning to come to know Jesus Christ. But then at the rejection of the gospel... By the priestly order, I don't know if you remember this, but 
uh, the deacon, Stephen, was stoned. Remember that? He's stoned. And that marks the priestly order refusing the gospel. And that's the moment where the gospel begins to scatter. And then it goes to Samaria. And the deacon Philip goes and he preaches the gospel. And, 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 and what was re referred to as half-breeds, the Samaritan people were both Jewish and Gentile in their heritage. And they supposed that they were worshiping God, but all along the way they had mingled their traditions with pagan traditions. And, and Philip goes and he preaches the gospel. And people start accepting Christ. And then Peter goes and he unlocks the gospel there. And the Holy Spirit is poured out up upon the Samaritan people. And we're kind of taking a step away from a Jewish focus towards more of a Gentile focus, right? So the Samaritans almost function as a bridge towards the Gentiles, right? But now in chapter 10, what we're going to see is that Peter encounters a man named Cornelius. And we're going to see how God uses Cornelius to bring the gospel fully to the Gentiles. And so that the church will be established for the Gentiles. Okay, so today we'll be looking at how God uses a man uh, whose name means sunshine, by the way. That's cute, isn't it? All right, cute name. Uses Cornelius as a catalyst for the, the early church among the Romans. More specifically today, we're going to be looking at how hope is found in God and not in our best efforts, okay? So while there's a do doctrinal component here, I want you to understand that there's a very much a spiritual and inspirational component to what we're going to talk about. And devotionally, what I want you to walk away today with is I want you to understand that our hope does not lie in our best intentions, our best efforts, and our best life now, as some would say. So, so how we measure success in life so often runs counter to how God measures success. Are you with me? Many times as human beings, let's just get real specific, as Americans, as, as westernized people, okay, as educated, as wealthy middle class for the most part, people. A lot of times, what we consider to be success, in many regards, is actually just interference to what God really wants and how God sees success. You know, we just had graduation a couple weeks ago at, uh, at the high school that I taught at. I know. No, it's hard. It's been very, let me just say this to you as your friend. This has been a very hard weekend, and I'm going kind of through a mourning process. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I just left my job of 10 years teaching high school so that, so that I can uh, be a pastor full time. That's been very, very hard. Uh, but we did just recently have graduation. Many of you had your graduations. Yeah, guys, you had graduation parties, uh, which is basically an excuse to collect cash. <laughs> Now, what I, what I see every year uh, uh, around the time of graduation, I see seniors reflecting on their high school career. They're looking back. They're reminiscing. They're telling stories about the time they egged that person's house or, you know, so-and-so almost died in this instant. You know, that was so funny. 
and that person almost died. <laughs> and they tell, stories, they tell stories that are fun, right? And so there's always this reliving of the past experiences of high school, uh, friendships, kind of many people are saying goodbye. But if you're really to, pr- to probe, like if you were to ask some of these seniors and you're really to talk to them, and ask the right questions, what you would quickly realize is that many of them are actually giving the majority of their emotional energy to imagining what life is going to look like in the future. What they're thinking about is what the future holds. And they're picturing themselves on a campus somewhere, in a classroom, meeting new people, imagining what it's like to have a professor, not a teacher, right? They're imagining their future jobs, their future homes. They're imagining their attractive boyfriends or girlfriend in their mind. The, the future holds an attractive boyfriend for me. I can see it. Not me. But, I'm, but as a, a high school girl graduating, my MFO, I can see him now. He's slightly nerdy. He's smart. He's got ambition. Good hygiene. And they're imagining... Those types of things. And they're picturing what success looks like. So here's the deal. What we learn from the world in terms of success is essentially what Drake teaches us. Yes, the rapper. I'm I'm referring to Drake the rapper. (laughs) What he teaches us is that success looks like wealth, prosperity, power, respect, a good-looking boyfriend or girlfriend, Personal satisfaction. That's, that's what success looks like in our world. But see, what Drake doesn't know is that those things are empty. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1 says, I said in my heart, Go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doth it? I sought it in my heart to give myself unto wine. Yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom and, and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was uh, that good for the sons of men, which they, they should under the heaven all the days of their life. I made me great works. I built me houses. I, I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchard, uh, orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in mine house. Also, I had great possessions of of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me and whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my, my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. This is King Solomon, the greatest of all of the kings of Israel, who's saying that when he set himself out to live like Drake, or to have possessions, or, or, 
as we'll, we'll discuss later, there are many forms of success in our minds. Whatever your form of success is, when he laid hold on those things, they proved to be vanity and vexation of spirit. Key point number one today, there is no satisfaction in anything outside of Christ. See, what Drake doesn't know, and what so many high school and college students don't know, and what co-workers don't know, and what family members don't know, is that only true fulfillment comes and is sourced in the worship of Jesus Christ. And what we need to learn is what Cornelius is about to learn in Acts chapter 10. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time. I need you. I need your spirit. Lord, be with me. Lord, help me to communicate the truths of your word with clarity without allowing my opinion or perspective or slant to make its way into my communication. I I need you, and I I need you to be glorified. Um, And I need for us, Lord, I I desire greatly for us, uh, Kaya Midtown Baptist Temple, to receive these truths that we might abandon self and personal perspective on how we might attain goodness and success, that we'd abandon those things to simply know you in every regard, that we might know you and know you intimately. Amen. Our, true, our truer purpose, that's the name and the title of this message. Acts chapter 10, we'll start here in verse 1, and we'll talk about who Cornelius was. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band. Now, we've heard stories about centurions before, haven't we? Okay, so you might be familiar, if you're familiar with the Gospels at all, this will fall on on familiar ears. Okay, We, we know a story about a Roman centurion that Jesus Christ encountered. In fact... It was the first Gentile uh, encounter, ministry encounter, that we see Jesus have. Uh, And it happened to be this Roman centurion whose faith he commended very highly. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 4, it says, And Jesus saith unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, so he just finishes doing a, a great miracle, and it's recognized by all the people, and the, and the fame of his miracles began to spread abroad. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus say, saith unto him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come unto my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled, and said to them that followed, Verily, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Now, as beautiful as uh, as a message that would be to preach, I wish I could preach that this morning. But that's not the focus. What I want you to see is what the centurion claims here. Okay, He claims to be a man of authority. He's a man that when he tells people to do something, they do it. And he understands commands. And because he understands authority, he knows that if Jesus, the creator of all things, simply says it, it will be done. And he doesn't need any more. 
than for Jesus to speak it and it to be so. What a beautiful, beautiful message. But what I want to focus on is the authority of this man, okay? And, and, and so also the authority of Cornelius. See, he was a man that was a centurion, and centurion means someone that oversees a group of 100 soldiers. So he had 100 soldiers at his command, okay? And in Rome, that would represent great authority. He's a man of importance, Yeah? And so Cornelius was in a position of great authority, which would have come with it great privilege. Okay? Now let's, let's think about that for a moment. He's a soldier. He's a career military man, right? And so he's probably privileged in many regards. When he walks into a room, probably people were taking notice, right? He would have probably had wealth. He would have probably been a very tough individual. I am not very tough. But when I see military people, I assume, maybe wrongfully so, I don't know, that, they're, that they've got a bit of grit about them. And if he's, if he's been in the military as his career, I imagine that he's probably a very tough, hard-nosed individual. I assume that he's probably also very well-educated. He's been trained. He's been trained by the Romans, and he's a man of education. Now also, he lives in Caesarea. We learn that he lives in Caesarea, which is a city about 65 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And about 35 miles north of Joppa, where Peter is currently at. We'll talk about that later, okay? Peter's in Joppa. He's hanging out. He's going to come to Caesarea. But Caesarea was famous for being particularly beautiful. It's a, it's a coastal city. And a man of wealth would probably have had a beautiful home there, I, I would imagine, with a view. Okay, That's what I would want if I had wealth in Caesarea. I'd want a, an apartment, a studio apartment, with a view of the ocean. And I assume that he had something like that. It was known for its architecture. It was a beautiful place. But, but what we really want to focus on here is not just the fact that he was a man of authority, and that he was a man of probably wealth, and that he wasn't that he didn't live in an apartment somewhere, living living his best life. He was also not just externally a great and powerful man, but he was also internally a good and righteous individual. Verse two says of him that he was a devout man, and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. If you jump down to verse two, uh, twenty-two, it also says of Cornelius. The centurion, that he was a just man and one that feareth God and of a good report among all the nation of the Jews. He was, uh, uh, who warned, uh, was warned from God by a holy angel to send for thee in his house. That's the calling of Peter and to hear the words of thee. So uh, he, was, he had a reputation as a Gentile. I want you to know this. Jews, the Jews did not like the Gentiles. Okay, They didn't like him. He would have been seen as a heathen. And yet... He worshipped the God of the Jews, and they recognized him as a just man. And they saw him as a good and devout man. In fact, um, what you learn uh, about, um, if you look back in history, there were a lot of Gentiles that worshipped the Jewish God. They would go to temple. Uh, they would listen to the teachings. They would participate in activities 
Okay, there was a lot of people like Cornelius who participated in such a way, and they were referred to as God-fearers. In other words, they were, they were vile because they were Gentiles, but they were, they were God-fearers. They would go as far as not getting the circumcision. They would do everything but be circumcised. Okay? And so Cornelius was one of those men. And so while he was a Gentile, the Jews would maybe kind of accept him. Right? But because he refused Gentile traditions, right, he would probably fit in this weird place between Jew and Gentile. He would have probably been rejected in many regards, and he wasn't afraid to be a man on the outside. That tells you something about his character. Usually people want to fit in, right? They usually would want to commit to something, all right? And so what he was was just a devout man who desired to follow God, and he was kind of in the in-between, he was kind of in the in-between, and he was okay with that. Cornelius was unique in that he worshipped God as a Gentile, and he was regarded as a man of authority. He was looked to as a man worth respecting, and he was a man of great purpose. He was also a man of compassion. It says that Cornelius was devout and God-fearing, and then it mentions that he taught all his house to fear God. You see that? He taught all of his house to fear God. So what we have here is a person who's tough, gritty, smart, wise, and he's God-fearing to the point where he regards the human soul. And he's sensitive enough to God that he desires for his whole household, that means his family and his servants, to know about God. And he teaches them to also be God-fearing. He was also a man of worship, not just in public, but also in private. It says that, that he was a, a man of prayer. He was a man of prayer. And he's someone who practiced Jewish customs, and he would have prayed three times a day. He was very spiritual in that regard. It also says that he was a man of action, that his faith and his God-fearing produced action. And so he gave alms to the poor. He was an active participant. In, in ministry. And I say all this to say the following. Cornelius would have been regarded on the outside, externally, as a man who had things really figured out. He had everything that anybody could want. Right? Power, authority, wealth. But also he was a man who people would regard as spiritual. And internally, Internally, people would have said, that is a good man, that his character is upright. We respect him. We respect his worship. We respect who he is, how he holds himself. He is a man that is good on the outside and on the inside. And in today's world, we would see a man like Cornelius and say to ourselves, now that's a man who has things figured out. That's a man I can respect. His life is good. He's well off. He's a leader in his community, a man of spiritual character. Yet for all of his high character and his devotion and his fear of God and his obedience and conviction, he didn't have the most important thing. Now here's the, here's the point I want to make here. Whether you look like Cornelius or you look like the certain man who was decrepit, who was asking for alms outside of the temple, he was lowly and meek. Whether you're a drug addict or you're a CEO, 
If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God sees you one way, and that is lost. That is lost. In God's eyes, whether you're a drug addict or a doctor, you're the same. See, without Christ, hell is the mutual faith of both individuals. Whether you're anxious and insecure or confident and well put together, without Christ, absent repentance, there is no hope for you. Whether you've attended church your whole life or today is your very first time stepping into a church, Jesus Christ is the great equalizer. I believe it's in Zechariah. I can't remember. I'm spitballing here. But it describes Jesus, the Messiah, the, the one that's prophesied of, as being a person who sets mountains and valleys at even. He has no regard for station. And confessing him as your Lord and Savior is the only way to lay hold on God. Key point number two. There is no salvation. And by extension, righteousness. Meaning rightness or right standing before God. There is no salvation in anything outside of Christ. Not spirituality. Not reputation. Not accolades. Or any other worldly construct. None of these things will fulfill you or make you whole. See, we don't need our best life now. We need righteousness now. We don't need to have worldly success. It is not regarded at the th- at the, at the, in the throne room of God. At the Bema seat. There will be no regard of your wealth or fame. We need to know Jesus Christ. See, this concept is a hard one to swallow among people today because our minds are so bent towards the temporal. So many of us are motivated by personal fulfillment and success that we don't want what we can't understand. We don't don't even... How can we possibly desire eternal things if we can't even see them? We are blind and naked and wretched. We are Laodicean through and through. How can we possibly want the eternal things of God? How can we possibly want the intimacy that Jesus Christ offers us if we are so blinded by the world's definition? Of what successful living is. We think that we can attain heaven on earth. And we're wrong. And spirituality won't get us there. Religiousness won't get you there. Church attendance won't get you there. Giving to the poor won't get you there. And prayers won't get you there. Knowing Jesus Christ is the only way. So you're telling me that worshiping Jesus is better than wealth, happiness, a vacation home, and as many friends as I can imagine? So you're telling me that knowing Jesus intimately is better than being well-organized, 
overcoming my anxiety, making my boyfriend happy, having my friends like me. So you're telling me that friendship with Jesus is better than accolades and fame. Yes. Yes, a million times over. See, I don't need anything as long as I have Jesus. I don't need wealth. I don't need friends. I don't need a girlfriend. I don't need a boyfriend or even to overcome my anxiety. What if I'm plagued with depression off and on the rest of my life? So be it. So be it. I have to know him. I have to know him. Matthew 16, 26 says, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and, and, and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? See, there could be no fulfillment in a life outside of Jesus. He is it. He is the one. He's the one. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. You're not the one. What you can do that, that in this life is not what gains you righteousness. John 14.6 says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And Romans chapter 4, the entire chapter, read it. It declares that our righteousness is imputed to us by faith in Him only. Now here's the beautiful thing about Cornelius. Okay? And that he was a man of a little bit of faith. See, the difference between Cornelius and people today, religious or non-religious, is that Cornelius knew that his personal goodness and success was not enough to save him. See, he knew he needed more. His prayers to the God of the universe in his times of prayer did not go unheard. He prayed and God answered he prayed and God answered. See, the small faith of Cornelius was enough to produce more truth and more revelation. See, see, even though he didn't know Christ yet, his demand upon God to know him more rang the bells of heaven. And God is so faithful to hear those who desire to know him. He's so faithful to respond. Key point number three. Truth invites faith. And listen to me. This is where Cornelius was. And faith invites more truth. So Cornelius, he had a little bit of truth. He knew that the God of the Jews, that he was on the right path. That he was on the right track. And he was faithful to what he knew. But his prayers in some regard demanded more, and Jesus heard that. And those prayers and that faith invited more truth and more revelation. And so faith and truth are compounding agents. You understand? Faith and truth are compounding agents. That means that if you believe in the little that you know, that God is looking at that and he's saying, here, let me give you more. 
Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. It's compounding. Faith builds. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. When you respond to the truth that you've been given with faith, you're rewarded by God with more truth. It unravels itself. Even when you're saved, it works this way. Even when you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you go from milk to meat. It unfolds. This is so we don't get bored. We're always hungry for more. We're always hungry for more. And God is faithful to give us more. And so we have this man, he's lost, and he needs to know God. And he's a prayerful man, and God hears him. God is a teacher. And the gospel is his content. And before one can continue in the curriculum, right? For those of you who are students right now, you're hearing this and you're like, ugh, I hate this illustration. <laughs> before you can continue forward, you know, it's one unit one and then unit two and then unit three, right? Before you can continue on to the second lesson, you must respond first to the lesson you've been given. And that's the beckoning of God in your heart to receive Jesus Christ. Faith is the test. So God makes a way for the gospel to come to him. And this is the point, this is the thing I really want to focus on real quick before we end. You know, it says in verse 3, that Cornelius sees in a vision about the ninth hour. So this would be the third prayer time of the day for a Jew. Okay, And this would have been the moment of if you remember correctly, Christ's death. Right? So he's praying and he sees a vision that ninth hour, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he's, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. I want to pause for a second here. And I want to tell you, don't ever doubt prayer. And, you know, a lot of times we're cynical about prayer. When a lost person says, well, I, they've prayed about. Okay, well, they might not have the heartstrings of God the way a child of God does. But I'm telling you right now, if a person is praying, let them pray. Let those meek and humble and Ignorant prayers ring the very bells that Cornelius' prayers did. And you join them. And you pray with them. So that they might receive revelation through God's word. Verse 5 says, And now send me to Joppa, or send men to Joppa, sorry, and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside, and he shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And when the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he had, he had declared all these things unto them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, now listen to me. Cornelius again responds with faith. He gets some revelation. Look, the angel of God says, look, 
There's a man in Joppa. His name is Peter. And he can tell you everything you need to hear, everything that you've been praying about. He can tell you those things. Cornelius asks no questions. He gets his men together and he sends them to Joppa. Now I want to point something out. God had a man for Cornelius, didn't he? His name is Peter. I have a man for you. His name is Peter. Have you ever had that friend that you wanted to introduce to another friend? Have you ever, you had a friend and you're like, you've got to meet my other friend over here. Yeah? This is kind of like what God's doing here. And, and we do this out of, of a conviction that if these people met one another, their lives would be more rich. I do that all the time with you guys. Like, I'll have a visitor come or someone from school or, or whatever, and I want to pair them with a person that I think that, they would, that their relationship would resonate with. You've done this before, haven't you? Like, hey, you need to meet so-and-so. And we do this in our gospel witness all the time, right? You have a friend you have been uh, sharing the gospel with at work or at school, and it's always easier to witness to them if they can meet uh, other believers that you love, and you can kind of scaffold that relationship, and, they can, and you can remind them that you're not actually just, you're not as crazy as they might think. That's another motivation. It's like, I promise I'm not, I'm not crazy. I, I, there are other normal people like me. But this is what God is doing. He's doing that here. See, he he wants Peter, who is the man that held the keys to the kingdom, to meet Cornelius, who was the key man. That's what he wants to do. This encounter is going to be a pivot point in God's mission to the world. And it's going to revolutionize Cornelius' life. Now hear me here. Has there ever been a point in your life where someone entered into your, into your life, into your sphere, with the message of Christ, and it altered everything? Where, where God invited someone into your life and everything changed. Who is that person? Think about them. Thank God for that person. Acknowledge that person. Cherish those people. Some of you have just met that person. You've just met that person who's introduced you to the idea of God and the idea of Jesus Christ, and it's new to you. I want to point something out to you. You have two options when you meet that key person who has the, has the keys to unlock the truth of the gospel for you. You can either resist or you can receive. Or you can make excuse. Trust me, there's a million of them. You can say, I don't have time. You can say, I've got this other thing to do. I can't make it to prayer meeting tonight. I know that you wanted me to come. I can't make it to Bible study. Thanks for the invitation, though. I'm going to go do this other thing. And all the while, God has brought a person into your life. who he's given the capacity to unlock truth, whether it's salvation or it's sanctification as the goal, that's the person that God's brought you, whether you like it or not, whether it's comfortable or not, it doesn't matter. That's the person that God brought into your life. And you can either resist it or you could receive it the way we see Cornelius receive. 
See, maybe it's not just a someone, but a something. Maybe God is bringing you through an experience that is drawing you closer to Him. Closer to your need for faith. It's a pivot point. It's a pivot point moment in your life. And again, you have two options. You can resist that. You could find a way out. You could scramble to make the situation change so it's more controllable for you. Or you can receive it and rest in it and know that God is working it to bring you and to draw you closer to Him. But it's your choice. It's your choice. In Acts, you know, we've seen many people in these pivotal transitionary moments, haven't we? I mean, we've been introduced to several of them. And they've all had a choice. Moments where truth came knocking at their door, and some have refused, like Simon the sorcerer, and some have received, like a certain man. And you can either throw away this moment, or you can throw away this person, or you can throw away this opportunity to choose something you see as preferable or more successful for you. Or you can lean in, and you can own it, and you can let that person or that situation run its course the way God intended it to. So here's the key question. Did God bring you here? I mean, obviously, I mean here like this morning. To this place where you're hearing this message. Did God bring you here this morning? Was this, or was this just an accident? Did God bring you to these people? Did God, did God give you that disciple? Or was, it, or was it just the pastors rolling the dice? Did God give you that Bible study? Did God bring you here? Here's the question. What will you do about it? What will you do about it? Will you resist it? Will you keep it at arm's length? Or will you receive it? That's the question. As the worship team comes up, I want you to consider that. Now, for some of us, listen to me, I need you to pay very close attention. For some of us in this room, you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, just like Cornelius did not know Christ as his Lord and Savior. And you cannot afford, and I'm talking about in eternal terms, you cannot afford to wager the kingdom of God. You cannot afford to hedge your bets that you are a good enough person. Cornelius could have said that. No, no, no. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. There's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. And if you need to make a decision today, do not dare leave this place until you've reckoned your soul right before the living God. Some of us in here know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Maybe you're getting discipled, and you are struggling to be a man or a woman under authority. You're resisting. That God's brought you a key man, a key people, a key place, a key situation, and he wants to use it in your life, and you're resisting. You think you've got a better plan. I want to challenge that this morning. You're here for a reason. You're hearing this message for a reason. Own it. 